Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Angus Hill is just probably the, the most ridiculous private member's bill I have ever read. It's atrocious. I mean, it completely violates human rights to say and have freedom of expression. And I don't know where he thinks he's right. Chris Anke, our guest yesterday, First Nations guest and uh, fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute on Charlie Angus' private member's bill, 372, which, uh, well, Mr. Angus seems to... uh, believe there's an equivalency between tobacco advertising and uh, advertising for oil and natural gas. Mr. Sankey, by the way, has been willing and told us yesterday he'd be willing to debate Mr. Angus on this program. Unfortunately, Charlie, who's been a guest on this program, did not reply to my email inviting him to come on. So I'll do it again this way. Charlie... Um, Chris Sankey is willing to debate you on the show, and I'm more than happy to arrange it. Let's go, let's get started with the Premier of Alberta. Always, uh, always a pleasure to uh, have Danielle Smith join us on this program. Premier, how are you? I'm fantastic. Nice to talk to you, Roy. Yeah, it's good to talk to you always. Do you have a thought, or just out of the gate, a thought or a comment on the expected Arrivecan report tomorrow from the Auditor General? I can, I can tell you this is part of the reason why governments have to get better at doing these things internally. All I can see is that it seems like it was contracted, then subcontracted, then subcontracted, then there's finally a company that did the work. And we're at a point now where we've got to develop expertise in this. And so I would say our approach in our government is to bring these kinds of projects internally for exactly this reason, so they don't turn into this kind of catastrophe. Yeah, that thing was supposed to cost $80,000. <laughs> Well, and that, was the, that was the value of it in the end. But yeah, my goodness, when maybe taking a cut all the way down. You can see how it does escalate. Yeah, yeah. How do I get a job like that? <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. We don't want to go there because I wouldn't do it. Premier, let me start with the uh, the controversial issue that you've put forward, and that's the transgender policy, which is going to become law in Alberta. I've received a number of emails. Several of them have been very polite, just wondering why now and. Uh, are you uh, directly challenging sound medical um, advice and positioning? Well, as you know, I've been watching this for for quite some time, um, and I've been I've been meeting with members of the transgender community ever since I was in politics the first time. So there were a few things that we had to address. One, one of the things that we have to address in my province is that we don't do the top and bottom surgeries in Alberta. We we send people to Quebec for their surgeries, and in some of these cases, there's a 100% complication rate, and so. Not being able to have quality aftercare is, I think, something very important. And I'd heard that many times from other transgender individuals uh, as adults, that getting the lifelong support for hormone treatment as well as the some of the side effects that happen from that, you need you, we need to be able to do a better job connecting doctors with, with uh, the transgender patients. But then it begins a conversation of at what point should a person make a decision 
about when they get top and bottom surgery, about when they take cross-sex hormones, about when is the appropriate time to go on puberty blockers and, and halt fertility. And so we've been having conversation as well with parents in, and watching what's happening in other provinces, watching what's happening around the world. And it, it did strike me that in the UK, they've taken a major U-turn with some of the things that came out of their gender identity clinic, Tavistock, which I think is slated to close down in March of 2024. Same with Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. They've also now taken a, a bit more of a wait and see and a caution approach when it comes to these issues. And, and so the, the issue is evolving and there isn't consensus in the medical community. And this is just too important for kids to make these kinds of decisions as children. We think these are adult decisions. That's part of the reason we put it in place. I spoke of uh, two transgender women, mothers, last weekend. One you consulted with, the other you did not. And uh, they both voiced their view, the parental involvement, parental engagement in their children's lives at a particularly challenging, difficult time is essential. Yeah, and I, and I think most parents feel that. It doesn't matter whether you're transgender or from the LGBT community or whether you're, you're, you're straight. You want to know what's going on with your kids. And I think that the, the main thing I would say is, is that we, we want to make sure that if a child is going to be going through this uh, major trans, transition, major transformation, then, then parents and families need to be involved. There's a lot that goes on with a child, and uh, they need the counseling support. They need the adults in the in their life to, to, to support them. And you can't do that if um, the schools are keeping secrets or, uh, or, they're, or they're not involved. So, uh, so we are, are taking the view that once a, a child has made the decision that they want to transition, they want to come out to their school community, they want to change their name officially, then parents have to be brought into the loop on that. The parents can't be the only ones not to know uh, because ultimately in a, a school community, we'll get back to the parents and then you'll end up with even more trouble and difficulty. We, we think the view is let's be, let's be open about this and let's make sure every uh, adult in that child's life is involved so that they can support them. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It, uh, it will get back to the parents and people can say all they want about not engaging parents, but it will get back to the parents. What I found interesting as well, let me switch horses in midstream here. Opening an Alberta office in Ottawa, right under the noses of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Gibo, how much fun was that? That was a lot of fun. I, I, know, I know that I've been looking at, because the international offices now fall under my portfolio as intergovernmental affairs minister, and I noticed that Quebec has a very strong presence around the world. They've got 34 international offices, including one in Ottawa. And it got me thinking, wow, um, it's, it does seem to me Quebec has a heck of a lot more influence on Ottawa decision-making than we do out in Alberta. So that was a bit of the inspiration for saying, if it's good enough for Quebec, then why don't we do it too? And, and we had a, a really good launch. My, my guy on the ground there is James Carpenter, and he put together a couple of great events. And I think you'll see that my ministers will now have a staging area to be able to visit Ottawa more frequently. Uh, First Nations um, and the chiefs also joined us to open up the office. They'll be able to have a, a place to meet with their counterparts as well in Ottawa. So I'm looking forward to Alberta asserting uh, ourselves a little bit more strongly on the national stage. Yeah. Uh, you did that in, uh, in, in Washington as well. What reception did you receive from the Americans? You know, part of my visit to Washington is there's going to be a change in government this year one way or the other. There might be a change in the Senate, might be a change in the House of Representatives, might be a change in the White House. And we have a, a lot of, of, 
of things we need to talk about with the Americans. That that it, it, I think we all have a good relationship, regardless of who's in the White House. I mean, we already have 161 billion dollars worth of trade between Alberta and the United States. Um, they are our biggest trading partner. Many of the states um, get most of their uh, their uh, their import products from us. And so we I wanted to meet with a few key senators so that they understood how important that relationship was, and to hopefully avoid what happened last time. When Biden first got elected, you saw that he one of the first things he did was cancel Keystone XL. That's right. And um, I, we we know that the Americans should be relying on us if they are looking for additional supply. They shouldn't be relying on Iran and Venezuela. And I want to make sure that we're trying to get the Americans to look at North America as an integrated market with us, with the with the Mexicans, as well, because there's always protectionist pressures that happen in the United States. But I think we've got a special relationship with them. And I just wanted to, to make sure that that was underscored. Well, good for you, because uh, the relationship with our federal government is largely non-existent uh, for your province and for Saskatchewan. All you need, though, is more, more liberal MPs, and then you'll get favors. I believe that's <laughs> what a Trudeau minister said, which that effect. You can text us at 877-399-9898, which... Uh, Less did in Saskatchewan and less texts. Charlie Angus will not come on your program to discuss his private member's bill because it makes no sense. It's an attack on the people of the West. We certainly heard Chris Sankey's point of view on that. Premier, your thoughts on uh, Mr. Angus's bill. I mean, it doesn't have a snowball's chance in that hot place of becoming law. But it does have a following. There are people who will say it's a great idea. Mr. Angus is comparing the oil industry to the tobacco industry of the 1990s. It's a ridiculous reach. But what's your sense of, uh, of, this, of this bill? And is it in isolation or, or is, there, um, is there an alliance which is supporting Mr. Angus? Well, I can tell you my, my message, whether I go to uh, Ottawa or whether I go to Washington or whether it's in my home province, is that Alberta with our abundant oil and natural gas resources, can provide energy security, energy affordability. With carbon capture utilization and storage, we can reduce emissions at home. We can also export LNG and ammonia abroad to displace coal and reduce emissions internationally. And it's an important part of our reconciliation with First Nations because they're increasingly taking on an ownership stake. Now, what I just said to you, if this law passes, I would be fined up to $500,000 I could get a million dollar uh, fine, actually, um, if I, because they said it. Uh, I guess a company, so the company of the of the government of Alberta would get a million dollar fine, and I could face jail time of two years. Now I don't know if I would be if that would be stackable because I broke the law five times in the statements that I just made. But that just shows you how utterly absurd it is what the NDP is doing, and I don't. I'm not sure who it is that they're they're trying to to placate. But uh, but I can tell you that there there will be no resonance for that kind of message in Alberta, and maybe we can say well at least it won't pass. But how alarming that they put it forward in the first place. Talk mm-hmm. about tone deaf. Yeah, and the fact that it got past the leader, and it's uh, and it's actual private members legislation that's put forward. I'm I'm hoping to speak with Mr. Singh in the next couple of days. And certainly that's going to be a topic of discussion. But you just talked about the economy and the economic impact of, uh, of this particular legislation were it to pass. I also noticed on your X account or Twitter account, you, uh, you posted 
what uh, Mr. Guibo's 2035 energy policy would cost the Canadian economy, the Alberta economy, actually cost all of us. Just remind us about that, please. Well, it's an extraordinary number, you know, $600 billion. It's uh, over 100,000 jobs. And when, when you think of, of what, um, because what it is, is it's not an emissions cap. It's a production cap. And when you reduce production, then you reduce all the revenue flows that go along with that. All of the royalty revenues that come to us, all of the corporate and personal income tax revenues from the, the people working in the industry that go to us and the federal government. And you end up not only harming Alberta, but you end up harming the, the entire country because we are such a, a large contributor with all of our various forms of taxation to the, the, uh, the benefit of Confederation. It, it's baffling that they would want to aim to go in this direction. But, but this, is, this is what I've determined that Stephen Gibo does, is that he announces absurd policies. Uh, makes us go to court to get our constitutional rights back. And in the meantime, it has a chilling effect on investment. So he's trying to scare away future investment. And and that's, the I think, the really sinister part of, of how he operates. But we're just not going to let that happen. We're not going to put up with it anymore. What he's doing is against the Constitution. They keep getting the courts ruling against them. And we owe it to the people of Alberta and to our, our friends across the rest of the country to make sure that they don't succeed in this. We We can produce this this resource in a way that uh, that reduces emissions. Over time, we want to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. There is no reason for them to be trying to crush the Alberta economy and take away our ability to develop our resources. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the Americans, as you know, Joe Biden has paused issuing LNG export permits, liquid natural gas, would be a tremendous opportunity for Alberta um, and a need to, for the trudeau Gibo tag team to get out of the way if we have the infrastructure to get our LNG uh, to Tidewater and to the countries that need it because the Americans are stepping, stepping back for a moment at least. We could take advantage of that. You, you know, I talked to Senator Joe Manchin, who is the, one of the leading Democrat senators in the U.S. He's unfortunately retiring because he's been such a champion of our, our energy sector. And one of the things he said is, even with the pause, they're still going to be able to increase their LNG production and export fourfold. So, um, so that's where they're at. They're going to continue to grow. But even still, um, the fact that they've, they've tried to virtue signal on this in the first place, and we see the same thing happening in Canada, I, I, I think misses the point. They all should go back and read what we signed on to for the, for, out of the COP28 summit. It says right there, natural gas is an important transition fuel. Because we all know that our European friends and neighbors need uh, natural gas. Our, our friends in South Korea and Japan need to have the, the products made from, uh, from either LNG or, or ammonia. And we have an obligation, I believe, as a responsible citizen of the world, to make sure that our, our friends and, and neighbors and allies are, are going to be able to have the energy that they need. So I believe that having um, a robust expansionary LNG policy is, is good for our country, and it's also going to reduce emissions around the world, and we should be embracing it. I was just, uh, I'm in Hamilton, as you know, and I was just walking along the uh, corridor at the radio station yesterday, looking out on the street, and a big city bus went by, and, and bold lettering on the bus, powered by natural gas. And, you know, it just makes such sense, except for certain individuals. We have a minute. Premier, who do you like in the Super Bowl? Well, um, I, I, tend, I, I don't know the teams all that well. My parents were always Tom Brady fans, and I always go to my mom to ask her who she's rooting for, but she hasn't found a new 
a new team that she likes now that he's retired. <laughs> so I'm just going to watch it and eat some eat some nachos and enjoy it. Yeah, we'll see how many times Taylor Swift shows up on the TV screen. <laughs> <laughs> Good Probably to talk to you. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. This is an issue that's been talked about a great deal, written about a great deal. And uh, there are so many opinions out there, and I've talked to so many people about it. And it's the issue of the Safer Supply of Drugs program. How effective is this? And it's for drug-addicted people. They have access to um, a safer supply of of drugs like uh, heroin and uh, fentanyl and other drugs to help them in their difficult times. Now, is it actually doing that job? There are communities, people in communities who say, no, where these drugs are made available very close by, they wind up with, uh, with issues that are very difficult to deal with and uh, abuse of these, uh, of these drugs. So is it a success? Is it a failure? So that's part one of what we're going to talk about as far as the drugs are concerned. The other one has to do with chronic pain patients. And we'll get into this issue before the end of the hour. Chronic pain patients, and we've talked a lot about this on the program. I, I talked to a, a widow of a chronic pain patient who took his own life because uh, he was refused the continuance of what was a very successful and physician-supervised program of opioids for him. Just couldn't get them anymore. So he shot himself in the head. I'm not going to soft coat this stuff. It's real. And uh, I'm very happy to speak with Dr. Brian Conway, medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. Dr. Conway knows what this is all about. Dr. Conway, thank you very much for coming on the program. Well, it's been too long, Roy. And before we get into the subject matter at hand, uh, I know you've been very public about uh, sharing some of your own uh, health issues, and I wish you, uh, I wish you well. And I would like to send a shout-out to all these guys that are a little less young than they used to be. If all of a sudden you have to get up twice a night to pee, uh, this is not normal. This is not you just getting older. You need to have this checked out. Yeah. So uh, let's, uh, let's uh, do that. And, uh, uh, Roy, I wish you well. Thank you, Dr. Conway. I really appreciate that. And, and I was stupidly uh, in, in denial about exactly that. I was, I was taking longer to pee, and uh, well, it says, eh, it'll take care of itself. So that's nothing. Well, it turned out to be something, and it's something very serious. But I'm still on the right side of the carpet, and I'm being well-treated by, by our healthcare system, which is under duress, as you know. Um, but uh, I do appreciate your, your thoughts and your support, Dr. Conway. On this, on this issue of uh, safer supply of drugs, um, what's the objective here in layman's terminology it's been around for a while it's being criticized as being a, a dangerous program what's your assessment of it well it's not black and white i think that the theory is that as the street supply of drugs gets more toxic and puts a person who buys it at risk of an overdose if not death the idea is if they had access to other opioids that were prescribed such as the safer supply they would choose to use those as opposed to what they would purchase on the street and thereby not be exposed to that risk of overdose or death. That's the theory that underlies the program. And how's it worked out? 
Well, it's not black and white. Obviously, it's been around for a while here in British Columbia. This past year, we set a record for the number of overdose deaths, over 2,500. So if the question is, has it led to a decrease in overdose deaths? Absolutely not. Is it a tool that we should be using in the context of other tools? That's probably true. So if people try to say, does it work or does it not work? The answer, from my point of view, it works in context and it needs to be viewed in that way. So you're on the east side of Vancouver. Your clinic is on the east side, correct? Yeah, correct. So, so you see, you see a great deal of uh, of, of the issue happening in front of you and in your clinic. Um, can, can this program be? refined at, at this point? Because, you know, we, we, we've been hearing, and you know, again, you know far better than I'm asking, just asking questions here. Um, we've been hearing that the those addicted to drugs will get their their their, their package of, 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 of drugs, and then they'll go to a, a dealer on the street and sell them so they can go and so they can buy more potent drugs and use the drugs they just received as, as at least a down payment. How much of that is going on? Well, our Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, recently admitted that that was happening without necessarily quantifying it. So it's real. It's something that uh, that does happen. So that's why I am completely opposed to, to people who say, well, let's just make this safer supply, hydromorphone being the usual drug, trade named allotted. Let's make it widely available, freely available without restriction, and that will solve the problem. If there is already some amount of diversion occurring with prescribed medications, then I think that we'll, uh, th this will just exacerbate the problem. This is why I'm not using the word safe supply anymore. I'm calling it supplementary opioid agonist therapy, OAT, opiate agonist therapy. We know this. It's methadone. It works. So what we're saying is methadone alone doesn't work. We need to supplement it. We need to put it in the context of a plan of care that is individualized and it is meant to help the individual that is seeking help at that point in time. And in that context, it may be that additional ingredient that's really going to help us engage the person better, help them deal with their addiction better, and that plus other services is going to be the key to it, not just safe supply alone. So uh, at this time, then today... You don't really have to prove that you're addicted. If I understand it, you don't have to prove that you're addicted. You have to declare that you're addicted. Then you become eligible to receive this, the ADT. In its simplest form, that's right. So people who come in and say, I want safe supply, view it almost as, as, uh, as something that they're entitled to. And we initiated a discussion. I have over 200 individuals who are on this supplementary opiate agonist therapy. And I tell them, look, this isn't a McDonald's. You've got to come in and we've got to talk. And we're going to try and individualize things, programs, interventions to your needs. And an extra tool in the toolbox is this hydromorphone, this dilaudid. And I think if you view it in that way, it has a chance of being very helpful. If you view it as a solution, if this is what we need, we just need more safer supply and things are going to get better, then that's not true. If we view it as a right or an entitlement, that doesn't help us. We have to put it in context. Dr. Conway, have you seen anyone who's actually been able to um, rid themselves of their drug addiction by using this, this ADT, this safer supply? It, 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 again, it has to do with, you know, what is it that you need that's going to help you get through this, that's going to decrease your cravings for street drugs, that is going to allow you to sort of rebuild uh, a life that uh, is, is free of street drug use. Some, they have medical issues, they have social issues that need to be 
addressed. And the only way that we're going to address that is by engaging people in care. The only way we're going to engage them in care is by addressing the addiction using all the tools we have at our disposal, including the use of additional opiate therapies beyond the methadone and other things we've been used to in the past. Is there political will to follow your your uh, your lead and uh, your your advice that these drugs should not be available without a prescription is that the political will to engage that well it's interesting that when the coroner's report came out here in british columbia suggesting that they be available without uh, a prescription within minutes premier of the province premier Eby said absolutely not we're not doing that so that is you know almost for sure not going to happen but what has not yet been articulated properly is what is the role of this intervention in the broader picture of addressing the opioid crisis. And that is what I hope we will be working on in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. Why would the premier listen to a doctor who's right in the middle of it, eh? That's, well, let's just... You know, an election's coming up. They tend to listen better when an election's coming up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Job insecurity. <laughs> Dr. Conway, thank you. Appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Roy, always a pleasure. Be well. There was a headline in uh, the Toronto Star last weekend, or last week, rather. 13 overdoses in less than an hour. Belleville, Ontario, confronts an overwhelming overdose crisis. 55,000 people in Belleville. 13 overdoses in less than an hour. That's how bad it's getting. But that's uh, some of what we talked about with Dr. Conway. Barry Ulmer with me now, the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Barry, you and I have talked many times on and off the air. Thanks for joining us. How bad is it? First of all, how many chronic pain patients are there in this country? I don't, I don't think anybody really knows, but, but the numbers, you know, are, are in, the, in the tens, hundreds of thousands, Roy, and it's getting worse because there's fewer and fewer doctors who are willing to work in the field. Yes, yeah, so what is it, 10 or 15% of the population, right? Yep. So if we have 40 million people in this country... And it's 10%. That's 4 million. It's a tremendous number. It's a huge number of people. So in 2017, there was a guideline that was released by Health Canada. And uh, the chairman of the, or the, the author of the guideline was a chiropractor at McMaster University who can't even prescribe Tylenol-3. But he was the author of this guideline, which brought a great distressing reality to chronic pain patients in this country. So how bad is it? For the chronic pain patient, Barry, who was accustomed, even today may be accustomed, and have found a quality of life uh, with prescribed opioids prescribed by a physician with whom this patient has had an ongoing and longstanding relationship dealing with chronic pain. How bad is it for the patient today? It is tremendously bad, Roy. As I said, there's, there's fewer and fewer doctors because of those, those guidelines and, and the policymakers uh, going after physicians for prescribing. Have, most doctors have dropped out of the field, and it's getting worse even with their upcoming update of, of the new of the guideline. It's just going to remain the same because of the, the percentage of, of uh, medications that they want to use is even is even dropped more than it was then. So for the for the person who is uh, totally debilitated by the chronic pain they're living with, and who is finding their opioid medication which, again, prescribe, good relationship with the doctor. They understand each other. They make sure that the, the, the prescription amount is uh, commensurate with the, with the need. Uh, that person, that, that, that patient, is in serious trouble. How often does it lead to thoughts of, attempts at, and actual commit, committing of suicide? 
Well, I don't think in Canada we we have trouble coming here with numbers, but it's, it is from our perspective, and and the, and the calls and and uh, for information that are just getting worse and worse and worse. But just look at the maid statistics and the number of people who are applying for uh, for uh, use of the, uh, the maid situation, which of course, as you know, the only reward for maid is death, basically, and that's what they're using to control their pain. It's it's nonsense. That's terrifying. So what about new guidelines, Barry? There's also talk about new guidelines to replace the ones from 2017. Well, there's, uh, they've been reviewing the, or were supposed to review those guy, the 2017 guidelines within five years. That's what we were told at, uh, when, it, uh, when they came out. However, we're now into the seventh year, and they finally, uh, the group that's reviewing them have, have finally come out with, with allegedly uh, guidelines, except they won't tell you what they are. Uh, they've recently sent out a, a survey asking uh, of about 10 or 11 questions asking for uh, views of people, and this is from all over the world, it's not Canadians, of, of what these new guidelines or, or their view would be. And, and even one of the examples in there is, is the, the, the amount of medication that they're recommending to use uh, is, is not much better than, than what it's been. And we all know that people in severe chronic pain, uh, that amount that they're allowed or su- are suggesting to, to use won't won't touch most people's pain, uh, especially those who are in severe pain. It just won't do it. We all know that. Yeah. I've talked to so many chronic pain patients over the years, and we've done quite a few programs, as you know, and with you and with uh, with others, with patients, who are in a very, very distressing reality, and they have nowhere to turn because, you, as you said, doctors have been, who were, who were prescribing and who were treating pain patients, many have been chased out of that particular discipline, they're afraid that their colleges of physicians and surgeons will come down on them and threaten their license, no matter what the uh, colleges say. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I've talked to doctors who've told me, yeah, actually, my license has been threatened. The colleges will say, no, no, we don't do that, but the doctors say, yeah, they do. Um, it's, it's a terrible world, or terrible reality for chronic pain patients, Barry, and the reality is any person could be the next person at any time. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, you can just walk walk out on the street and fall and, and crack your ankle or something, and, and nothing helps it. So uh, anybody is prone to that sort of stuff, and and there's just and there aren't any doctors that will treat them. As I've we've been after Health Canada for years now, they they keep coming up with these things, and we keep asking them, well. Who's going to treat all these patients? And and because of the lack of doctors, and they have no explanation, and they're not spending money on. Yet here we see now that they're spending money on American cable TV advertising some services that don't really exist. We all know that, and it's just becoming ridiculous. Yeah, you put me in touch with uh, a couple in their sixties a couple of years ago, and the gentleman had been uh, used to a an, 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 uh, opioid medications prescribed by his doctor, and then the doctor got afraid and stopped prescribing. And the gentleman committed, or he attempted suicide, and it was his wife who found him and saved his life. What a terrible, terrible situation, and so damned unnecessary. Mr. Ulmer, thank you for everything you do. It's the Chronic Pain Association of Canada, and our listeners should get behind you. Thanks very much, Roy. It's nice, uh, nice to be. Always good. Good talking to you. Thank you. Things that are expensive today and increasing in cost are up significantly from where they were before the pandemic. So everything is more expensive 
anyways. Uh, as I said, you know, it's costing $700 more for groceries than you had, you know, last year. John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion, and uh, John with us yesterday, talking about the increasing cost of living, which we're all experiencing, and uh, really how Canadians are suffering because of that. I think it was 41% are are very depressed about this, and uh, 37% are living, getting through life with the assistance of government programs. And then there are people who, for various reasons, don't make it, even with the government programs. Sometimes they're mental health issues. Sometimes it's just experiences that they've had that have harmed them. And uh, we see these people every day. On the coldest days and nights of winter, they're huddling on a grate on a sidewalk trying to get some heat into their bodies. They don't go to shelters because shelters make them feel uncomfortable. And you just see people step over, step over them or, or around them. And what the hell are you doing there? Get out of my way. That is that has always disturbed me tremendously. And I do not like aggressive panhandling. I don't like people to be essentially verbally picking my pocket while I'm doing something. But at the same time, as I said before the break, when I get to a traffic light and there's someone standing, and they clearly, and I know you're going to tell me they're just putting on the the, the terrible clothing because it's a living. Well, okay, if they are, then, then I'm giving them two bucks improperly or inconsequentially. So be it. But it's very possible that that person who's looking for a a few bucks really needs it to get through the day and get through life. And maybe it's just the human contact. Somebody reaching out and saying, here. So I do that. And I always, it's it's generally men who, who do this. And I always say, sir, always address them as sir. Because, again, I've been through that, uh, the toughest part of life. Lived homeless. Uh, One year in high school, my teacher sent me out of the classroom on a bogus mission just before Christmas and asked uh, my classmates if they would be able to bring in some canned food so they could uh, give it to me so that my mother and I would have something to eat at Christmas time. So I know what it's like. I get it. I know what it's like to live in a, in a shelter when you're a kid. I get it. I've been there, done that. So I will not ever, ever step over somebody or just ignore them. I just won't do it. The Ontario Superior Court this past week heard a challenge begun in 2017 against a legislation called the Safe Streets Act, which prohibits aggressive panhandling toward a, quote, captive audience, end quote, at you know, public transit ATMs. But panhandlers at intersections have also been targeted. And, and this could, and this, is, this is how unimaginative legislators are. This is how stupid they are. Violations of the law. So if you're a panhandler and you break the law on panhandling, Violations of the law come with a maximum fine of $500 for the first offense, 
and a maximum fine of $1,000 or imprisonment for up to six months for subsequent offenses. They don't have 500 bucks. They don't have $1,000. What a pointless, stupid section of the law that is. All right, here's a ticket. You've got 30 days to pay $1,000. This is dumb, unimaginative, pointless, and stupid. Let's talk about this this uh, this court case. Harini Sivalingam joins us, director of the Equality Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. They were involved in this in this case in court. Uh, Ms. Sivalingam, how are you? I'm good, thank you. But um, I also share a lot of your frustrations. Uh, on, you know, this process and what's happening. So um, very eager to speak to you about this as well. Yeah, give us your side. Uh, your, your, what's the case you presented at court? What is the Canadian Civil Liberties Association that's far more eloquent than what I've just delivered? Well, I think you, you really summarized the issues really well. Um, and the, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association was extremely interested in intervening in this court challenge. Um, you know, at the time it was launched in 2017, but I think now, especially now that it's come to a hearing, I think it's really important to look at the context in which we're hearing this case, right? So we're in the midst of an affordable housing crisis, um, you know, inadequate income support uh, programs. And I think you mentioned also, you know, the pandemic um, and post-pandemic recovery. Um, we're also seeing municipalities creating and enforcing bylaws to remove unhoused people from public spaces. So it's really important that within this context, that this constitutional challenge to the Safe Street Act um, is really important to, to examine. And as you mentioned, um, the Safe Streets Act really criminalizes people for living in poverty and asking members of the public for what they need in order to survive. So that is why CCLA is intervening in this challenge. And we argue that the Safe Streets Act restricts freedom of expression and endangers the security or safety rights of unhoused and low-income people um, who seek donations from the public in certain spaces, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. And so, you know, like, we're also seeing, like, state and um, other institutions that have failed unhoused and low-income people, right? Um, so in all of those crises, right, you mentioned a few of them, right? Uh, um, the affordable housing crisis, the... Um, you know, crisis around substance use that we're um, seeing right across, you know, not just in Ontario and not just in our local communities, but right across the nation, right? Um, and so that's the context that this hearing and this case becomes so important in, um, in addressing as well. So let's look at the issue of, because uh, it's going to come up on the air, um, pan aggressive panhandling. Yeah. So how would you define aggressive panhandling and where's the line between acceptable behavior when asking for some financial support, some help? Where's the line between acceptable and unacceptable behavior? Where's the so line? Yeah, I think what we have to really look at is, I mean, this is what CCLA argued is that, you know, um, that this, uh, in the sense that this is a violation of freedom of expression, it, that's you know, expressive content that's protected by the charter. So what we're looking at here is people really requesting support from members of the public. And when they're doing that, they're not just asking for fair change, but they're asking people to see their humanity. So we've all experienced, I, I know you, uh, in your monologue, you, you like earlier, like to introduce the segment, you mentioned, you know, street corners, and we've all experienced, um, 
you know, um, uh, well, most of us have experienced um, this contact, right, where sure. you know, people have approached us. Yeah. Uh, and it's very similar to what Mike said. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes uh, the, the, the behavior can be threatening. Like, I'm a, I'm a big guy. I'm yeah. over six feet tall and over 200 pounds. So I'm a big guy. And I can, you know, I can handle myself if I need to. But um, someone who may be smaller and, uh, and, and, and intimidated by uh, a person who comes at them aggressively looking for money, I'm just looking for where's the line that shouldn't be crossed by the person who, who's looking for assistance. Is that part of the case or not? Um, so I think it's more about the state, like the law itself, right? And they say that the law is really overbroad and that it captures too many more than it should, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that, you know, it, it captures not just, you know, people that may, um, you know, um, be disorderly or, you know, more aggressive, mm -hmm. but it also captures other um, expressions as well, right? Which are protected by the charter. Tell me and this. Yeah? Uh, when is this case expected to uh, be uh, adjudicated on? So the hearing was last week, um, and we, we're not sure when. Um, it's really up to the courts um, okay. to take months um, to make a decision. Um, so it's really, you know, like in in a few months or so, we we hope to see. So we'll have more to talk about then, Ms. Sivalingam. Thank you very much for taking the time on a Sunday afternoon. Thank you. All right. Thank you. It's take care. You. Oh, my pleasure. Another great story we're going to be hearing tomorrow is when the Auditor General for Canada. Ms. Hogan, brings down her report on the Arrive Can app. It's going to cost 80 grand. That was the, remember that? It was the initial price, 80,000. It's a, I think it's a 54 million and climbing. And the, uh, the diversionary trails that the money has taken as it's been dispensed to indispensable people creating apps will be very, very interesting to follow. Uh, the Premier of Alberta was our guest in the last hour, Premier Danielle Smith. I asked her for her thoughts on the Arrive Can situation. All I can see is that it seems like it was contracted, then subcontracted, then subcontracted, then there's finally a company that did the work. And we're at a point now where we've got to develop expertise in this. And so I would say our approach in our government is to bring these kinds of projects internally for exactly this reason, so they don't turn into this kind of catastrophe. That's a good word, catastrophe. It'll, it'll fit. And then there's, I'm going to be talking to our next guest about all of this. The next issue is Charlie Angus Bill 375, the ERC 372, the private member's bill, which equates the oil and gas industry with the tobacco industry of the 1990s. Um, I asked the Premier about that. Alberta, with our abundant oil and natural gas resources, can provide energy security, energy affordability. With carbon capture utilization and storage, we can reduce emissions at home. We can also export LNG and ammonia abroad to displace coal and reduce emissions internationally. And it's an important part of our reconciliation with First Nations because they're increasingly taking on a, an ownership stake. Now, what I just said to you, if this law passes, I would be fined up to $500,000. Maybe more. Up to a million and possibly two years in prison. There's the Premier of Alberta with us in the last hour. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, democracywatch.ca. And uh, 
and we talked enough a fair bit about what's going on in our government, becoming more relevant all the time. Uh, Duff, welcome back on the Arrive Canada app situation. I, I, I tweeted out the uh, day before yesterday that AdScam is going to start to look like a training camp for ArriveCan. How, how bad do you expect this to be? I think uh, it's very bad, and um, it's going to get uh, worse for everyone involved who's been mentioned in the stories um, before it gets better. It's not a, really a partisan issue. It's an issue of a failure of uh, really the public service, deputy ministers on down, of not uh, running the government properly for any political party. And if you scratch the surface of any tech issue, uh, purchases, procurements across the country, you'd find the same problem. And the, and the problem has existed now for more than 20 years, uh, essentially because the top managers in governments are people who barely knew how to use email, and yet they were buying huge tech systems for governments. And if you scratched the surface of any big business as well, you'd find the same thing. Um, the problem was that executives who had the decision-making power were being fooled by consultants who, you know, the old joke, uh, consultant is based on the word to con someone and insult them because <laughs> the consultants, some of them didn't know what they were doing either. Others did but we're trying to sell the most expensive system as opposed to the one that would work best. And it's really been a failing of big businesses, big organizations, and big governments across the world for the last uh, 25, 30 years. But we had, we had millions and millions of dollars being subcontracted for this app. Any, any, anyone even remotely familiar with the idea of spending judiciously Anyone remotely familiar with the idea of 80 grand is what we're initially budgeting for this app. And now somehow we're getting over 50 million. We'll be saying, hold on a minute. Where's the money gone? How, how, how come these people over here are involved? And how come they're now subtracting to those people over there? There's a whole lot of money being made by a whole lot of people for absolutely virtually nothing in, in return. No, and it, it does start to sound like ad, ad scam, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It, it's been running for 10 years uh, with scary, it, these, the companies involved in this. They've collected yeah. a half a billion dollars in federal information technology contracts over the past decade. These companies, GC Strategies, mm -hmm. which is two guys, they all they do is subcontract. That's all they do. And they've been paid tens of millions by multiple government departments over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And these companies, Coradix and Dalian, um, again, mostly subcontracting to others. And and that everybody makes scandal, money. Yeah, but everyone who has been involved in contracting, all the public servants should have said to themselves literally 25 years ago, how much is it going to cost us to hire people who will be permanent public servants yeah. who know how to choose subcontractors? Well, that's what and Premier Smith have, was talking about. They'll keep it in house. Would have cost them about two hundred to $300,000 a year to have a, a few people in in the government who would be doing all the subcontracting and and hundreds of millions of dollars would have been saved. And mm -hmm. Instead, they've been hiring these subcontracting companies with GC strategies from their own communications that have been disclosed. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they were whining and dining people in the government and building relationships with them without registering as lobbyists. 
even though you you're required to register if you're communicating about someone's decisions. Right. And there's loopholes in the lobbying law that probably could have possibly allowed them to legally do this in secret. And it's just an overall scandal. The system is the scandal in this situation, yeah. as it is in so many others. And the system needs to be cleaned up in every way. Absolutely. We later on are going to be speaking with Member of Parliament uh, Larry Brock from uh, Brantford, Branton, Ontario, former prosecutor, was a member of the Commons Government Operations Committee, who's very familiar with what's going on in that uh, ad scam situation. We have about a minute. We're going to switch to one topic and stay with that one. We talked last weekend and the weekend before about the Interim Ethics Commissioner, Conrad von Finkenstein. What have you found out in the last week, Duff? Well, what we've uh, looked into is what Mr. von Finkenstein may be doing on the side while supposedly serving the public as Interim Ethics Commissioner. He still has an active consulting and arbitration website, mainly aimed at big businesses. Um, so is he doing consulting on the side with businesses who are lobbying the federal government? And he is also <laughs> no, senior no, fellow. No possible conflict there. No, exactly. <laughs> Not in his mind, because, you know, he's he, in his mind, he hasn't found a conflict yet and has created six new huge loopholes in the law that allow for financial conflicts of interest by cabinet ministers and top oh, government Lord. officials. And they'll actually will allow them to profit from their own decisions. That's how big the loopholes are that he's opened. And then he also is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, which is uh, a think tank that is funded by big businesses in Canada. So we've asked him to disclose his activities, his clients, and also his financial assets and liabilities. Because, uh, and it seems like there may be a loophole in the law that allows the ethics commissioner to hide his financial interests from the public. Isn't that interesting? Which, of we're, course, we're, we're will allow him to profit from his decisions as well. We will, we will follow up on that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.